to The Exchange, the official podcast of the Fred C. Meyer School of Business at Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Acadia University is a member of the Maple League of Universities, an association of premier, primarily undergraduate universities that consistently rank highest for educational quality in Canada. The School of Business at Acadia University is named after Fred C. Manning, the first person in Canada to receive the honor of having a business school named after him. To learn more about Acadia University and the business school, please visit acadiau.ca and business.acadiau.ca. And now, on to the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Axe Change Podcast. My name is Brenda McNeil. I'll be your host today. I'm a third-year finance student here at Acadia University, and I am very happy to welcome my guest for today, Jerry Pond. Jerry Pond is the former CEO and president of NBTEL and Bell Alliant, and the current founder and CEO of East Valley Ventures, and a part of his company, Mariner Partners. And I will hand it over to you, Jerry, to give more of an introduction there. Well, uh, all right, Brendan. Thank you very much. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I spent a large part of my career as a corporate guy. I um, became you know, into the C-suite, as you mentioned, a CEO of a relatively small but publicly traded private company called NBTEL. And I became somewhat entrepreneurial there, believe it or not, in a telco. That's hard to believe some days. And we, we did start a few uh, companies. And uh, I got some experience there. In fact, one of our companies IPO'd uh, at probably the wrong time, just before the dot-com crash. But we can talk about that if you want. And then uh, I uh, retired early at age 58 and became an entrepreneur. So I call myself a seniorpreneur. And when we, uh, we being my colleagues and I co-founded a company called Mariner, which is an IT company, uh, in, uh, would be 15 years ago now, 2013, uh, three, sorry. Um, so uh, we also started helping other startups like ourselves. Keep in mind after the dot-com crash in the IT sector, there was a lot of, a lot of good unemployed people. For a period of time, so we, a number of our colleagues started companies as well. We we helped them out a little bit. One was called QN Labs, which was one of the big success stories in Atlanta, Canada, uh, in terms of you know, uh, well, in terms of wealth creation. It was sold to um, you know to IBM for six hundred million dollars. That's not bad for. And then another one was Radian Six, was a social media monitoring company that was started at UNB. Well, in Fredericton, and it was um, sold to Salesforce.com for four hundred thousand dollars. Both of those were done in sold in two thousand eleven. So we thought we really knew what we were doing, and we kept investing in other startups. We haven't had as many big ones as that. They're referred to as home runs. Anyway, I'm getting rambling. So um, I'm an angel investor. I'm um, I'm the chairman of our company. Uh, it's an IT company, as I said. And um, uh, we sell product, software products to uh, large corporations globally. I'll just leave it at that, I think. I'm still around. Um, 
can probably tell by my raspy voice and maybe what I'm going to say here that I'm a little older. Still kicking though. I'm um, I'm now 74 and still at it. Still competitive yeah. out there. Still and competitive. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. I suppose with the competitive nature, I have to ask. So you said you had um, experience in work with startups when you were working with Ambitel, which, like you said, I, w- I would have never assumed that. So what kind of environment would you have been to be working with startups? And, and what were a couple of the key points and valuable uh, insights that that provided you that you obviously took into East Valley Ventures? Well, it's a good question. I mean, we didn't know it at the time, but this was intrapreneurship, if you remember your yeah. your Business 101 courses. Um Intrapreneurship would be entrepreneurial activity inside of a corporation that would generally be a more mature company. Now, a telco, and in fact, this telco was over 100 years old, so it was mature. Uh, but uh, we were diversifying um, our business at that time. You know, what's called long distance today, which people would probably not, not even know what you're talking about. But uh, the voice telephone business was, was declining. Uh, and uh, the company was looking for new sources of revenue, and we have a, we had a diversification strategy. And instead of buying other little companies, although we did buy a few, we started our own, so internally started companies. And um, I'm proud to say that, they, well, they've all bitten the dust except one, uh, which is called Innovatia, and it is now Atlantic Canada's largest IT company headquartered in St. John, New Brunswick, and it has over 600 people, um, very successful, started with e-learning and now it's branched into more sophisticated knowledge management company. Okay. Yeah. And is, would that have been owned by NBTEL or would yes. that, okay. It was sold to that. management. Right. Yeah. In an MBO, okay. management buyout, because uh, well, it turns out that their major clients, uh, one of them was Nortel a company that you may not remember. No, I definitely of, heard the, the tales of it, though. So Nortel was our, one of our, our largest uh, technology companies in Canada, had the most value on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and went bankrupt in about two and a half years. And all of the pieces were sold off to U.S. companies okay. mainly. And um, anyway, the long story short is their major customer went bankrupt, even though it was the largest company in Canada, you can imagine, and um, the, it was sold to management. Right. Like, pick up the pieces if you want. We don't want this anymore. Yeah, do something with it. Um, sold for and, parts. But now it is very profitable. Okay. It's emerging in new markets around the world with oil and gas and different, different sectors of the economy. It's quite a success story. And so I must ask how that success story and other success stories tie into the dot-com bubble and the crash. Because it sounds like there was a lot of ruffling of the feathers in that time, like you said, and you could pick up a lot of skilled people who were out of work. So what were some interesting points from that time or or stories that you would remember from that great boom and bust? (laughs) Well, let's take one of the companies that IPO'd, uh, which was an internal build. We started it internally. It's called iMagic TV. It was internet protocol television, and it was offering the software to support those services to the telecom markets. And uh, this is an emerge. You know, we're talking now in the mid mid seventies. Imagine that. 
Sounds like a long time ago. Um, well, actually, um, uh, this company was formed in the mid-90s. Okay. okay. But the technology, internet technology, was first launched in the 70s. Right. Uh, very premature. But um, long story short is the company, uh, like many companies at that point, uh, was was able to IPO with virtually no revenues. Yeah. And uh, not a big company, but I believe uh, we were listed on the NASDAQ, the New York, of course, and Toronto, double listing. And we went out uh, just before the dot-com crash, literally. We were the third company before the end. All of the, right? Of the bull and market. And so we got our money. Um, 65 million in the U.S., which was a lot of money in those days. Certainly for us as a Especially startup. Especially with no revenue. Especially with no revenue or less than a million. Yeah. And um, then our market literally dried up because the dot-com crash was a result of overheated telecommunications market. Fiber optics was overbuilt. A lot of networks were overbuilt, uh, thinking that uh, Internet would create m a lot more data. It turned out to be true, but it was just ahead of itself. Yeah. So... Um, when the company, we got our money in the bank, but we had no market, literally. The market dried up. So we had to start laying off people, and we had over 150 people at that point. And a lot of them had come to the Maritimes, to New Brunswick in particular, uh, to work for us because it was such a cool market. Yeah. And fortunately, some of them stayed. But anyway, um, this is what happens when you tell stories. And at my age, you get rambling. But, um, Important details, though. I wouldn't well, want to Well, you, you want to know what happened. So we started to shrink our staff. Uh, we were hoping for a rebound, and uh, we were hanging on. Uh, and then the markets actually got worse after two years. We had a whole lot of trials going on in Norway and all around the world. People were interested in what we were doing, but they had no money for right. investing. Yeah, you know, in their own technology, right? So uh, we ended up selling the company, went on the auction block, and sold it to our largest shareholder, a company called Alcatel, a large French, uh, France from France, yeah. um, telecom manufacturer, and um, they promptly, I think, trashed the company. But that's what happened in those days. Yeah. But the good news here is that we were able to pick up a lot of great people. And uh, they did stay, a lot of them, and they were working for Alcatel, and the future was not very bright. That's when we started Mariner, uh, which is an IT company, and we started to specialize in IPTV quality assurance. Okay. And we were able to hire from Alcatel, XI Magic TV, their top 20 people. Right, because they're all on the way out. They, they know what's coming, right? Yeah. So that gives us a huge boost in our capacity, software development capacity, knowledge. These guys knew a lot about this industry. And we were able to launch our business, which is still running. Um, I'll give you a little bit of the parameters. It, we have about 200 professionals, mostly uh, people. And uh, our revenues go between 25 and 30 million. I've got to be a little bit evasive there yeah um so we're still growing 
and we're privately held. Uh, we own our company outright. Okay. Three founders. And so it sounds through these stories, um, obviously because you're based here, but in the IT sector, it sounds like Atlanta, Canada was a central focus and there was a lot of growth here, at least before uh, it all bit the dust in the early 2000s. Um, my question for you, though, is what are the major sources of growth in your eyes in Atlantic Canada and how can the IT, if possible, industry be rekindled and, and fueled here? Okay. Well, first of all, let's define a little bit of IT. And uh, information technology is its own business. So you develop software like we are at Mariner and we sell that to uh, other companies. So they, they, they use the software in their operations. And that's generally the what we refer to as pure information technology companies. Yeah. Uh, but information technology is embedded in almost every company, and in some cases, I'll give you examples, creates a new uh, category of company. Amazon is really an IT company uh, and a warehousing company, which is a logistics company, and it, they do retail as their core business, but... They're really an IT company right. with logistics. So e-commerce, which grew out of telecom, uh, is a um, an enabled IT-enabled business, and it it's global and it's huge. It's still growing, right? Now, if you take a production company like uh, food processing, we have quite a bit of food processing in Atlanta, Canada. Um, companies like McCain, Clearwater here in Nova Scotia, McCain in New Brunswick, well, globally, but headquartered in New Brunswick. They are in a, a manufacturing setting that has been perfected over the years. Now, well, let's take it very simplistically. Uh, they peel potatoes, cut them up, and fry them, and freeze them, and send them out to the market. And uh, that's generally been viewed as a mechanical process. But now... When the potatoes first, in fact, before they even arrive at the at the, uh, at, at the uh, factory, software is starting to analyze the potato. How you know how good is it? How fresh is it? Etc. And software is running all the machinery, and will eventually run the whole plant without people. It will be robotic software. And so, software now is embedding itself in old processes, like older technology, older companies, more traditional companies, forestry like sawmills are run by software. Right. Uh, the, the cutting of the log is determined to be economical by a software uh, package. And logistics is, for the trucking company that's carrying it to, to the marketplace is, is run by software. So software is embedding in, in all, all the industries. So the good news is it's it has a lot of growth because of that. So you have pure software selling software to other companies. Then you have software embedded in other companies' processes. It could be so deep, such as Amazon or e-retailing, it's hard to determine whether they're an e-retailer or a software company. Yeah, right. Yeah. And can you see McCain's and JDI to use... Mm. A, a lumber company, yeah. for example, he said, and then a potato company, both based out of New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. Can you see them having a particular focus 
on supporting Atlantic Canada and getting their software, like you said, from local uh, software companies, or would they simply go for the lowest cost on the market? Well, it's probably a bit of both because uh, every every product and service has a hierarchical uh, nature to it, right? You have your premium and your low-grade, you know, commodity-type products. And software is no different. Uh, the I'm proud to say that both companies, in particular McCain, are very interested in working with startup companies in Atlantic Canada. Really? They have a policy on that. Okay, that's great. And they have invested in a number of companies, publicly known, and one of them is called Resin, which is a um, data analytics company for agricultural farming. Um, so they they would assist a farmer with data around, um, uh, you know, the field is too wet, the field is too dry, there's too much this, there's, there's, there are bugs in the plants, whatever it might be. And that's all analyzed through either um, a drone flying over the field, a drone, um, well, or a satellite even, or a camera attached to the tractor that's plowing the fields. Right. It's all brought back to the cloud, as the expression goes, and uh, analyzed for the farmer real time. And I must bring uh, a bit of my personal interest into this question as well, because I think it's only appropriate at this <laughs> you want a time. Tip? You want some tips on investing? Well, uh, naturally. So I suppose <laughs> if you're offering those up, I'll take them as well. Mm. But um, I don't know if you heard, but Walmart and <coughs> IBM partnered um, a few months back <coughs> to run a prototype trial with IBM's uh, blockchain network they're developing with um, the Stellar blockchain network as a partnership. And they ran a trial with, I think, like bananas and watermelons to basically... Uh, have an identification on a specific watermelon or a bunch of bananas where they could track it from factory to mm-hmm. like store and then there and beyond. Do you think um, companies such as McCain's and, and JDI who are very focused on tracking their product and, and quality assurance, of course, making sure the field's not too wet, the product's not moldy, do you think blockchain will hold a place in kind of immutable accountability and being able to track things. So when I purchase a potato, I can mm. scan the barcode on my phone and yeah. have the blockchain list of the mm. data um, as that followed that through its existence until now. Or do you think the old processes do the trick and, and there's no point taking the headache and evolving to something new? Well, absolutely. Blockchain and other technologies will play a big role in identifying exactly where a fish was caught perhaps even what the fish was eating. I won't go too far there because I'm out of my field. But And um, track it right through its life cycle uh, into a processing plant or a, even a live pen because a lot of fish or seafood is sold live now globally. Right. Um, but, you know, it's a big issue. Uh, it's a health issue. It's um, Food has to be obviously uh, fit for consumption regulations are going to go right into the source of the food. Absolutely. Blockchain will play a part along with other technologies. Yeah. I'm very excited to see that play out. So I must pick up your last point. Um, investing tips in Atlantic Canada. Since you, <laughs> since you brought it up for all the young entrepreneurs that may be listening <laughs> and, and everybody based 
in um, Atlanta, Canada. I'll leave that one open-ended for you just because I don't want to try <laughs> to bias it with my own specification. So investing in Atlanta, Canada, like, is there insights or advice you could give there? Well, let's understand the market a little bit better. You know, markets for capital are regulated. And stock markets or investments of that type are highly regulated. Mm. The Securities Commission, we have them in Canada. They, uh, they're a national one or federal one and provincial. A few years back, they, they merged a lot of their rules and regulations. So now there tends to be one um, regulatory process, but it's provincial and federal combined, if I will. I'm not an expert on that. But um, if, you're, um, if you're in the public markets, they're regulated. That's the, in Canada, the Toronto Stock Exchange and right. various exchanges. Um, and, of course, in the U.S., it's, they have more exchanges, mainly out of New York, but they also have commodity exchanges out of mainly Chicago, uh, grain and pig's feet and everything else, right? Um, so um, that sector of investment is, is, is it's an old sector it's you know it's fairly well established in Canada most of the banks have investment arms that assist wealth management and uh, so if you put your money in a wealth manager we'll take TD Waterhouse as an example of a company that well does well it used to be called your stockbroker but they don't use that expression anymore they're financial advisors, and they will place your money into a publicly traded stock. And they're regulated on that, about how they deal with you, and the markets are regulated where they buy the stock. So uh, you can't list on an, on an exchange as a company without going through a regulatory process. And then the trading is regulated. The stockbroker is regulated. So it's a highly regulated industry. That's where the big boys and girls hang out. Underneath that is the venture markets. And these are unregulated, more or less, but venture capital firms are regulated as to how they invest their money. So you have to, you have to be a regulated business to be able to invest in venture. Below that again, and this is where we're coming to you and your colleagues, is a totally unregulated, generally unregulated market uh, called the startup market. It's angel investors. Those are people with high net worth that over a million dollars that sign a, a little bit of a affidavit to say they're in that category of wealth, and then they can invest in, in a startup company. The startup company can, doesn't have to have a prospectus, which is a legally reviewed document that tells the investor what you're going to invest in. They're given waivers. So these startups can get money from friends and family that don't have to be high net worth. They, uh, they can get money from angel investors that have to be a high net worth, and they can get money later from venture capital. So that's the startup venture world. And it's where a lot of the new companies that are created from scratch go through that cycle. 
Now it's referred to as a startup ecosystem. Governments have become heavily involved in it, provincial and federal, with programs to assist those startups. Assist them with rent, assist them with labor, assist them with export. You couldn't believe the amount of assistance. Now that's more or less unregulated, but it's government money, right? There's programs around it, rules and stuff. So that's the world um, I live in. So I am an angel investor. I, I do mentoring and stuff like that, but I also do the investing. So in Atlanta, Canada, we have literally hundreds of startups right now. Companies that are in this category, they have some funding from friends and family, angels perhaps, and they're building their businesses from scratch. Some um, government money for research, government money for export, and all that kind of stuff, right? Do you think um, this is kind of a chicken and egg problem? Mm -hmm. I know the government would be able to uh, provide a lot of assistance with startups, especially because those startup costs, like literally paying rent and keeping the lights on, can just take a company out because they don't have the extra money to expense that. Do you think the government needs to spend more to facilitate that? Or, um, and so therefore to have a more vibrant startup community and more GDP for Atlantic Canada? Or how do you think they should facilitate more increased startup growth? Well, I, I think we're probably at a max right now because okay. uh, too much money may be worse than not enough. Uh, too much money creates a lackadaisical attitude. It's not very entrepreneurial. No. It's referred to, I guess, uh, as grant entrepreneurship. Um, right. People become, you know, I mean, it's not like anything else that's success. Um, you know, they become addicted to it. Yeah. And it distorts their their balance sheet and their income statement. So um, that's not to say that people don't need a helping hand. And it's done around the world. It's not a Canadian thing. It's done around the world. Americans who have more startups than any other country in the world uh, are are in the same kind of boat. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think what's important is to understand that at the end of the day, uh, a, a for-profit company for sure, which includes social entrepreneurs as well, because they're, in many cases, they're for-profit, but they're dis distributing their money a little differently. So, um, don't want to complicate things here. So, um, if you look at it, um, their revenues are their biggest source of financing. That's the source of financing. It doesn't cost anything other than to get the customer. Yeah. That costs. So they all have to figure this out to sustain themselves. They have to get customers to create revenues that creates cash flow that allows them to finance their business. And if they have no loans and no debt, and you know, they can they can put that all all that cash flow to the bottom line. Yeah. They can self finance, and that's the ideal world. So, regardless of how they start, they have to end with some model of self financing. And so now, I if think they don't, you know, and it's possible uh, to get you know maybe into a twenty million dollar company. But you're not going to get into a $100 million company. No. Yeah. 
And so now I think we get into a bit more of a macro view of Atlantic Canada that will be interesting to get your perspective on if obviously the biggest thing that startups need to focus on is getting to the self-financing through revenues, which in turn means attracting customers that can be more of an existential problem for the Atlantic ecosystem um, as a whole, which is um, more people leaving than coming in, having youth that go to Toronto and Montreal for jobs instead, or they go to the States. Mm -hmm. What do you think can attract more youth, if that's the answer, or or older people, whichever demographic you think is best? And and how do you think we kind of appeal back to increasing customer bases? Well, you know what the startup community is is you know by by the definition is a new enterprise, and. Uh, some will survive and grow and some will not. And, and that's the nature. That's the kind of the Darwinism of, uh, of the business community, right? right? And, and you notice that very few companies last longer than 100 years. Yeah. And now it's even more apparent they, they have trouble after 50 years, perhaps, 30. And they're big, successful companies. So you have to have enough um, new growth to um, offset the decline of other businesses in your 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 economy, your region, just to offset it, right? So then if you want to grow the economy, which we do in Atlantic Canada because we've fallen behind since the Second World War. I, I don't want to go into history here, but we're, we're not doing well, economically speaking. And so we need to create more startups to get ahead. Right. To get, we don't want it just to stay even, we want to get ahead. And so that's just a numbers game, really. We have as much opportunity, especially in the digital world, that essentially doesn't require you to be beside your customer for, for even manufactured product. Because a lot of car parts, as you know, are manufactured around the world, assembled in Canada and sold in the United States, we hope, um, if Mr. Trump lets us do that. But, uh, you know, this is really about the economy. And the good news is that we have as much of an opportunity to establish an economy, a new economy or a growth economy with today's technologies and today's smarts as, as any other region in the world. Um, so stay and start your company. You, you're self-employed in that model. I think that's a great proposition. There's enough support to do that now and do it well. And I've got evidence of that, right? So it gets to be, well, do we grow enough of that to um, retain other people that aren't startup people, aren't entrepreneurs, but are good developers, web designers, or whatever it might be? So, um, and it's not all digital stuff. Yeah. could be designing a car here, right? Uh, so... Um, the, the, the raw material is there. Now, you, you, we have to be very crafty about it to survive in this competitive world. And there are, the good news is there are very small countries. I'll name a few. Israel, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland. You know, less than five million people, at least in some of those. Uh, we have two and a half or something like that in Atlantic Canada. So we're like a small country in terms of population. And we have a lot of history. We have 
great universities like Acadia out here on the Bay of Fundy, <laughs> places like that, and uh, 21 universities spread around the region, right? And then community colleges. So we have, we have a lot of the raw materials. We have people, not maybe as much. We don't maybe have an exciting life uh, for, for young people. My daughter says that. She's in Ottawa. But, you know, it depends on what we want to do. Um, we want to go to a rock concert every night with a different, uh, a different uh, artist? Or, or do you want to grow a startup and become King Kong, right? It yeah. just depends. We don't have everything, but we have all the major ingredients for a successful venture. Globally competitive. You're listening to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration, Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Podcast host Brendan McNeil interviews Jerry Pond, chairman and co-founder of Mariner Partners and successful startups, iMagic TV, Bovada Technologies, and Radiant 6. A lot of focus, I mean, obviously the Maritimes are grassroots, no pun intended, are in farming and, and fishing. Like literally the McCain's and, and JDI are a prime example coming out of here, lumber farming and, and potato farming. And there's been a lot of focus on trying to like foster that and keep that here because that's like our bread and butter. Do you think going forward, it's a necessity to evolve past that? Like you said, into the digital space, like say well, in Halifax, where there's new social media marketing companies and, and digital companies like that. Well, well, you know, natural resources form the base of most economies. And we know what they are. You know, it's agriculture, uh, mining, and, you know, finding what got created by, you know, the planets colliding and all that. It's in the ground, mining, yeah. and fishing, or marine, not just fishing, but marine, what, what, marine products, including um, things like you know, seaweed, et cetera, right? Uh, so um, the natural resources form the basis of the economy and probably will continue forever because we have to eat. And most of that process of food manufacturing or food production, I should say, comes from the sea or from the land. I don't think we're going to do for a while like air farming. Think of that, right? We farm in the air, take carbon dioxide, no, you know what I'm saying. And there's vertical farming, which is a big deal, coming out of Atlantic Canada, by the way, where instead of going across the land, you go up in the air and uh, provide the ingredients through a uh, mechanical process. And you can go rows and rows of lettuce right beside the Sobe supermarket in downtown Toronto kind of thing, right? Uh, it's kind of a joke when I said farming the air, but the air is out there as full of qualities that may, may create something of value. We take the oxygen at no cost, so thank goodness for that, right? Yeah. But, okay, so the basis of the economy will remain natural resources in that, that's an economist term, 
natural resources for a very long time. Why not? And uh, as long as we don't destroy it, we need the sustainability in those industries. But they're not sunset industries. They are changing the nature of how they produce their products with new technology. Right. They're changing the nature of how they reach their markets with new technology. It becomes complementary. Right. So yeah. they don't, they don't, you know, they travel through the internet. Like, for example, in our software business, we export most of our software. We export it through the internet. People say, how do you get that to market? What kind of containers does it go in or trucks or whatever? Because, you know, the physical world has trucks and trains and planes and whatever. Um, we, well, we, we send it over the internet. It arrives, takes a little time sometimes, big files, right? Uh, but um, that's not going to replace a fish. Yeah. We're not going to send fish over the internet. Right. Right? We're not going to send potatoes. Now, we might send the aroma of fish, cooked fish now, be careful. Um, we might send the aroma, and it's possible. You can send scent digitally. Is that possible? Yes. Really? I haven't heard of that, but that is quite impressive. Yeah, well, given all the senses now. I hate to tell you this, but this is old technology now. Well, Aroma know. phones. They, 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 didn't, they didn't really last. <laughs> um, I can see why. They used to be used to sell perfumes, and right. but not used to do things that you might think of as a joke. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask one last specific question in Atlantic Canada, and then we'll take more of a, a global economic view. And that last question is closer to home for both of us in St. John, New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. So St. John, New Brunswick, um, if my history is correct, reached its heyday as a port city, um, importing goods and, and exporting uh, back into the Bay of Fundy and through the oceans. And as that shifted more to Halifax, especially with the shipbuilding yard, um, it seems at least that St. John has almost stagnated and there has a lot of the youth and, and my peers speaking personally have left and would never fathom staying or could never see a reason staying. But um, naturally, St. John's not going to go anywhere. So what do you see, and especially being in your position fostering the startup community in St. John, Atlantic Canada, what do you see as being potential future success factors and the important focal points for St. John and other uh, cities in Atlantic Canada, such as Halifax? Well, um, there's always going to be a more effective city at a given point in time. And uh, that just the law and order of nature and a few other things, right? Yeah. The, for example, ports uh, in Canada on the eastern seaboard, like St. John, Halifax, and, and perhaps Sydney, um, were uh, essentially given secondary rating after the St. Lawrence Seaway was constructed so that ships could go all the way to Toronto. Right. Imagine that. Yeah, much uh, easier. And lake, lake Lakers, as they refer to, not ocean-going ships. You can't get a large container ship through the St. Lawrence Seaway, although you could just expand the seaway. As you know, they've expanded other seaways like that, Suez Canal, etc. Yeah. But um, so um, Mother Nature provides an advantage, and modern engineering takes it away. The seaway takes away the advantage. 
Um, but over time, there's a natural order to things, and you can have other businesses developing because you have those seaports there. And I use IT. We had a head office of a little company in, in the telecom world, very small company, called NVTEL. It was also headquartered in St. John. It didn't ship anything through, through the port. It didn't use any of the raw materials of those technologies and companies that were there. But it grew, and its successor, which is Bell Alliant, is still there. And there are a number of companies that grew out of that complex. And three of them I'm going to mention, just to give you an example. They're not well known, even in Atlantic Canada. The three companies that have come out of this complex of the NBTEL, Bell Alliant, telecom world are Mariner, my company, Innovatia, the company I referred to in the beginning, and another one called T4G. These are three of the Atlantic Canada's largest independent companies. They're all in the same city. They all have their roots in a non-port activity, if I can say it that way, non-manufacturing activity, not shipbuilding or whatever, not pulp and paper, telecom, digital world. And... Um, so if you put these three companies together, and I, and I can give you the numbers, they have over a 1,000 employees, not all in St. John, but their headquarters are there. They have $100 million of revenue. They have an annual growth rate, collectively, of 20, 15 to 20%. So they're not, they've not stopped. They're also approximately 16 to 20 years old. I have to give it a range there because I don't know exactly. Uh, I know Mariner's 16 years old, 15 going on to 60. So tw let's say 20 years old. This is the new St. John. But um, the port is still there, so they still call it the port city. They don't call it the IT city, right? So a lot of the underbelly of growth is, is taking shape in all of these cities in Atlantic Canada. Let me assure you. Um, they, there will be winners and losers in that. There will be more growth and less growth over time. I'm not a big sponsor of a, a single city. My notion of Atlantic Canada is multiple cities that work together called the city of Atlantic Canada. Some Atlantic cities taken, right? New Jersey's got that. Yeah. So this is Atlantic Canada city. And we will learn how to work together as one city. We don't want billion dollars, uh, sorry, we don't want million plus people in cities because they're quite inefficient. Mm. So we're going to keep our distributed model and retain the positive impact of, of our, our entrepreneurial spirit and our historical strengths, marine and ports and all that. And we're going to go into the digital age together as a set of cities. And you may know in economic theory, um, that works. Northern Italy is made up of three or four cities that essentially create different value-adds for the global economy. You know, cars, you know, Ferraris, and right. perfume and clothing, and industrial services, etc. Those three cities, and I won't give you a lecture in microeconomic theory, 
they worked together to create a, in this case, strong northern Italy. I won't get into southern Italy. There's a reason I won't. But uh, there's a lot of cases in the world where mid-size uh, metropolitan areas, if you will, don't have to all aggregate to become a super city in order to survive and grow together. We've got to get that model going in Atlantic Canada, and we can. I love that. I'm inclined to say you should be on the PR for St. John Atlantic Canada because that was very inspiring towards the innovation happening here. So, zooming out a bit, um, I have to ask, especially with your involvement in information technology, which is naturally a crown jewel of that would be cell phones and, and their interconnection. I, As I understand it, a prime focus of venture capitalists, when you look at an investment and you're speculating upon it, like how does this help the world, you have to ask, does this make lives, people's lives easier? Does this help people do something they want to do? And does this ease their pain of existence basically but a natural byproduct of that as we see more and more is allowing people to be more complacent and allowing a sedentary Mm. lifestyle you don't need to go buy your groceries you pull Mm. out your phone and amazon will fly it to your doorstep in a drone so my question for you in this industry is is that a fear you have and going forward or is there any steps you take towards shifting away from that and kind of preventing a kind of complacency culture as is presently encouraged well i'm sure people would have said the same thing about airplanes and a few other technologies that have become part of our lifestyle um, I, I got it. Uh, it's, uh, there are, they call it the lazy industry. Yeah. Like it, it allows people to literally, I suppose, stay in bed and operate. Why well, get up, right? Um, but fortunately, uh, human mind and the human body d- don't survive well in that model. Not at all. So you want to die in bed at, you know, as a overweight person. Um, taking advantage of all the technology, go right ahead. But I don't think too many people would go that far, right? So there's a trade-off, always a trade-off. I'm not an expert on the trade-off, but I know um, a lot of technology that's being invented is simply changing the way we do something, sometimes not for the better. But, you know, it's a free world, as they say. And if you want to adopt, we'll call it the lazy technologies, um, then that's your choice. Most people will adopt technologies that are more attuned to value. Well, they get an economic value out of it. Like one technology that I can absolutely say is, is a lot better is the ability to do banking uh, by, from home, if you will, or electronic banking. And even electronic cash, I won't get into that because you're a cryptocurrency guy, but electronic uh, banking, we'll stay with that. And it saves me so much time. And I wasn't very many years ago that to get my money from a paycheck, I had to go to the bank. And you're paid on a Thursday? Well, by 5 o'clock on Thursday, you couldn't get near the bank. You'd waste an hour. Just to get your paycheck. Because everybody would be waiting there. Yeah, yeah. Because 
and they you know even alternating paydays and stuff like that is like traffic being alternated starting at different times you know so people can get into the town get to work so we'll all start at different times and we behave and we'll get there and we'll all do our work in this big city so um some of it is, doesn't you know work that well but electronic banking has saved me hundreds of hours right. in, over my lifetime and i it's so effective. Well, the big issue may be now is the security of that. Well, there's always issue with security, even yeah. with the money under your mattress. Yeah, of course. So I see, a, yeah, a main takeaways with technology, it is a case of self-moderation and, and mediation, making sure you can at least control yourself. However, it does make it much more efficient. Um, another question I wanted to get into is everybody's great fear of technology stealing our jobs. Yeah. Obviously, automating everything puts people out of work. Bank tellers don't need to exist anymore because you have an application. However, I don't see that as a great fear because I believe we're going to adapt and there's going to be a lot more jobs in creative industries and, and humanities that can't be replaced. But I want to get your insight on that. Um, do you find that as a personal fear and where do you think jobs will flow once bank tellers, for example, aren't necessary anymore and it's just robots? Well, um, you know, I think I, I'm not an expert on job and value-added jobs and that sort of thing. There's some people who make a living on it. But um, fortunately, I'm 74 years old, so I've seen a few things, as they say. And... Um, since I was in school, which is a long time ago, university, um, people have been talking about, you know, the the dumbing down of jobs. They have different words for it. In the telecom industry, it was, uh, I, I won't use the word. Uh, I, 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 it's no, no value of that. So the telecom industry, uh, the technicians were required to physically connect wires to connect a phone. So like a, a local landline phone yeah. had to be connected in the central office physically by hand. I provided a fair number of jobs. Long distance calls, you'll recognize as calling from city to city. People don't know what long distance means anymore. Um, they were all connected by hand. The operator would plug in a circuit, your circuit, hello, I'm the operator, and then I want to call Tokyo, blah, 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 plug in to another circuit, connect the call, and start timing it manually. That was only stopped as a methodology uh, when digital switching arrived on the scene, which is computer-controlled switching, and it was all done electronically with software. That was started in the 70s. Touchstone phones. Amazing invention, right? This is not that long ago. So what happened to all the operators? A little company called NBTEL, we had 700 operators out of 2,300 employees. Then we had technicians in the hundreds, you know, doing the wires, connecting wires in central offices. Those jobs are all gone. But there's still 2,500 employees where they would be in the, if that company was still around. 
Right. I have to virtualize that a bit because it's part of a bigger company. So what happened there? Well, the jobs became application jobs. So what are you going to do with your phone? Well, I'm going to I'm going to Touchstone Bank or I'm going to tell a bank. Remember that? I'm I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to call companies and get stuff sent to me. E-retailing. E it all started with a phone, not with the internet. So all these 800 numbers, uh, which are, you know, the company pays. I don't have to pay a long distance charge. That's all it is. At the end of that were service reps that took orders for everything from soup to nuts. So the operator jobs essentially merged into service rep jobs at telemarketing organizations. Thousands and thousands of them, which have now been reduced by uh, computer telephony integration and internet. So you don't talk to a person anymore. You click. But there are, and I, somebody's going to say that these jobs are paying less. They may, they may. I'm not getting into that. But what happens next is these companies get so much business electronically, they have to get the product to the customers. So you end up with logistics and transportation companies. Well, they need drivers. They need, they need warehouse people, and they need programmers. They need developers. They need computer scientists. They need all kinds of skill sets to figure out how to do this efficiently without polluting the world with, you know, carbon, carbon and running trucks without carbon. So if you look at that whole sequence um, from the telephone operator manually connecting to the computer clicking to the truck rolling to the self-driving truck rolling to the non-polluting truck rolling lots of work around that yeah and so lots of work as you kind of give this life of experience here i come to see people have kind of cut it short they think this snapshot snapshot of where we are right now is going to stay the same so all these jobs are going to get replaced but nothing else is going to change so all these people are going to be out of jobs but as i see that as you say is with these new like job replacements comes new problems and people need to solve those problems so it's kind of it's a ball that's always rolling all that, like people yeah. aren't going to be out of jobs and there's a doomsday model and we all get it uh, yeah I, I i think we're smarter than that but uh, one of the things that is happening, though, if I could mention, is that a bad side effect of this evolution of technology and processes, not just technology, human behaviors, is the creation of huge amounts of waste mm. and pollution. And um, water, we know where it's headed. It's headed in a bad direction because of a disregard for waste, you know, the plastic that we get and all that. Pollution of the water, is, it's, it's a big, big world problem. And we, we have not kept up in some of these areas. We have pollution of the skies, no one's talking about that. You know, the planes pollute. And satellites pollute when they die and all that stuff. It's up there in the sky and it's no different than the ocean. It's, it's, there's a lot of space out there. Just sitting there. Um, so uh, right now, water, uh, you know, is a big issue. And land use. and There's a lot of stuff out there. 
huge opportunities for young people to create global empires to reduce plastic or to reduce plastic waste is maybe a better way to say it. Uh, to be able to have self, self, I don't know, destroying bags. You, think, you just talk to the bag and say, destroy yourself. And it destroys itself. That is a problem <laughs> of our generation, especially with ocean plastics. Personally, I don't know why, but I would love um, to fund an organization or, or to found a startup that cleans up garbage. Because it, it's the most obvious and, and present problem. But the dilemma I face, and when I look around and I see solutions like people collecting ocean plastic and, and making bracelets to sell those or recycling, mm. reselling bags. But the question I face is like, who's going to pay these people to scoop up all the plastic out of the ocean? Where is the funding going to come from? Because like, I don't see any <laughs> revenue generation from scoop cleaning microplastics out of the ocean. Like, that may be more complicated of a question than intended, but like, do you think there's a possibility for company and revenues there, or is it going to have to be government funded? Well, probably there will have to be some public funding, um, maybe some private and public funding. Don't forget, half of the organizations that exist in the, our communities here are private and public funded. Um, all the charities, for example, that support poverty and other issues in our society um, get their money from some government funding and private funding. We we have been uh, able to, I'm not saying we've done a great job at reducing poverty, but we probably at least stabilized it a little bit. I, I happen to know quite a bit about that category, so I spent a fair amount of time in that, you know, uh, providing, um, I guess, my support intellectually and financially to poverty reduction initiatives. Um, so the government doesn't have to do everything. But yes, uh, government ends up being the, um, you know, the supplier of last resort or the problem solver of last resort. A lot of pollution on land, mining pollution, has been left essentially by mining companies to, to, to the public to clean up. Yeah. Uh, that's not a good day. But there are hundreds, and other, uh, hundreds of other cases of mining companies, oil and gas companies, that have cleaned up. We don't hear about those because why not? They've cleaned it up. So there is an, a disconnect between what's required for, for society and, and for our planet and what's, what the outcomes are. People will, companies and individuals, will throw away waste at every opportunity without any regard to pollution. I'm coming down here from Halifax, or up here, I don't know if we're up or sideways from Halifax. <laughs> anyway, um, the car in front of me threw a, a, a cup out of the window. I won't name the company that was, that was behind the cup. Right out of the window. And, you know, why will you do that? Because they think they can get away with it. Good news is a paper cup does disintegrate, even if it's waxed. Yeah. But, you know, so... People do that, and companies do that, and it's not a matter of training them. I think it's you've got to be we've got to be even smarter. So that back to my little example is there's a tiny little microchip. I know everything's digital in my world, in every cup, and it accelerates the deterioration of that cup, whether it's plastic or paper, because we don't want paper either 
when, you know, it's not, it's, it is going back, it's biological, it's going back to where it came from. But, you know, this can be solved with some technology along with some smart people. But maybe we should, I should have been able to uh, take out my arrest gun. I wouldn't arrest them, literally. I would have um, um, maybe turned off their vehicle and said, you know, go to the side of the road and somebody will be along uh, in a few minutes and help you out. Yeah. It's the, it's the, you know, the, the waste police. And I, I arrest them by turning off their car. Politely and nicely. But, you know, that's, I'm just making it up. Obviously pretty stupid, but it's all possible. So we just have to decide how we want to do this collectively. Exactly. The one that I'm really concerned about is oxygen. Because there's nobody paying attention to that. Whenever we have big forest fires, like we did in British Columbia, and we have trouble breathing, well, that's Mother Nature kind of at work in a way, right? But um, along with a whole lot of other things happening, we're, we, there's a lot of air pollution. Diminished, but it's still there. And uh, I happen to have, that's one reason why my voice is raspy, I have um, problems with breathing. Brought on probably by pollution. I don't know. I'm not blaming Safe anybody. assumption, though. But there, there's more and more uh, breathing issues yeah. out there, uh, as there is, you know, dirty water issues and what have you. Uh, we've got to figure this one out. It's sitting there, like we're in this little studio, and I have no trouble breathing. But there could be a day when I might. Yeah. Yeah. No, these examples are a great call to action. I think it ties into our earlier point. If you're worried about loss of jobs, look here, especially as young entrepreneurs such as myself. This will be an ever-increasing industry as we go forward. So we're almost out of time. But oh, good. I got one, yeah, get us out of here. I got one last question for you to send off to uh, the university students and, and any other entrepreneurs. In your long career as an entrepreneur and in the C-suite, um, what would be your piece of advice for an entrepreneur uh, that wants to start up a company or, or be a startup investor? Uh, and what would be your piece of advice based on your experiences, extensive experiences of that? Okay. And I th I've been asked this quite a bit. And I'll give you the same answer I've been giving. I hope I've been consistent. Uh, it's don't let anyone, including your loved ones, tell you that you cannot do anything from Atlanta, Canada. Don't let anyone tell you you cannot do anything you want to do from Atlanta, Canada. And you stand as a testimony to that. But there's some things that are logical, like um, probably we're not going to have a space. Well, I guess we could have a space station here. There was some talk of having it in Nova Scotia, a okay. space station, wow. because it, it happens to be the right coordinates to land somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. I don't okay, know. Yeah. But, but it, it went quite far. I don't know. Maybe still a plan, like, like some you know, LNG terminals and stuff like that. I, yeah. I don't know. But uh, there are some obvious things that can't be done here. We're not, we don't live on the equator, so there might be some things that relate to high heat, you know, yeah. 724, 365, that can't be done here. But 
anything intellectually, anything with a brain activity that you want to do, you can do from here. Period. Don't let anyone, including loved ones, convince you otherwise. That is excellent advice to end on. Thank you very much for coming right. in today, Jerry. My pleasure. I'm glad to work with you, Brendan. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Axe Change podcast today. This is coming from the Fred C. Manning Business School here at Acadia University in the beautiful town of Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Once again, that was Jerry Pond from East Valley Ventures, one of the most heartfelt and avid contributors to the startup community in Atlantic Canada. Thank you, Jerry, for passing on your passion, your education to us young, bright minds to carry on the torch. The Exchange Podcast is produced by the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration. This is a volunteer production. If you would like to donate to support the Exchange Podcast, please see Podcast under the News and Events tab on the business homepage at business.acadiau.ca. Thank you. The Exchange would like to thank Paul Callahan. Jonathan Campbell, Kendra Carmichael, Dwayne Curry, Ian Feltman, Mike Kennedy, Ryan McNeil, Michael Shepard, Connor Viber, and Emma Hope. Music is Pickup Truck by Silent Partner. Access copyright free at the YouTube Audio Library. Follow the Exchange podcast on the News and Events tab on the business homepage or at SoundCloud under Exchange. Until next time, I'm Kazna Heinz, yours in Acadia spirit. <laughs>